Two of my favorite topics, data and bending the trend in the right way, in the right manner with people. And that reminds me of a book that I've read more than once, Measures of Success by Mark Graven. Every CEO around the globe should read this book, Ditto for CFOs, COOs, Operating Managers. Well, actually, everyone. Mark has a bit of the it factor. The guy is smart. He has a master's in engineering along with an MBA. He's clear. He's articulate. He talks and writes in a way that I can easily understand. If you are not familiar with Mark's work, you are in for a treat. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. My visit with Mark Raven, the author of Measures of Success, is coming up next. The subtitle of Mark's book, Measures of Success, is Rack Less, Lead Better, Improve More. And when you open up the first pages, you'll see the praise section. I like to read those because I'm curious who wrote a blurb. Well, listen to some of these names. This is amazing. Dan Pink, Eric Reese, John Miller. Now, the fourth name you may not be familiar with, I just read one of his books last year. I love the book. It's I think it's called An Elegant Solution, but the guy's name is Matthew May. So he wrote uh, one of the praise blurbs. And then he has Donald Wheeler, who wrote the foreword. This is like a who's who list of just great authors. And that's how this conversation got started, talking about the front matter of this great book Mark has written. Well, thank you. I'm glad you read it. I, I don't know if that section of the book is there mostly for the author's ego or, you know, it's a set of book forth into the world invites the risk that people don't like it or you get a bunch of lousy reviews on Amazon. So um, maybe getting the, that, that, that praise, it just gives you the confidence to hit publish and, and really let it out there. But and I think I it's, that. I think you just another reason for people to read. I mean, it, they, it's val- this book is validated, so highly uh, recommend this book. Uh, right now, we're recording this during uh, football season, and, and because we have people around the globe uh, listening, we're talking American football, not, 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 not universal football as in soccer. I, <laughs> I, I get a kick out of the talking heads. So you have a team that has a five-game winning streak, and then they lose. Oh, my goodness, the sky is falling. Or a team finally wins, or some rookie has a breakout game. Oh, he, he's going to be incredible. I feel like American, well, any CEO suffers from the, the, the disease that sports journalists have. That's everything mm-hmm. is a signal. And that's yeah. why you wrote this book, or one of the reasons, right? Yeah, it's not just sports media. And I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to go out of my way to pick on media, but it's just endemic of, um, you know, symptomatic of how people look at numbers or if we're not taught to look at numbers in um, a sophisticated way, if that's the right way of saying it. I mean, where there, there's this obsession in the news media, and I, I use a lot of examples of that in measures of success where you see the headlines with the two data point comparison. Something is up X percent from the year before. Something is down X percent from the previous quarter. And even a statement like, uh, you know, ratings for such and such broadcaster were at an all-time low 
doesn't mean that the single data point or the comparison to the data point before is statistically meaningful. Like you, you show me any data set and there is a lowest number ever somewhere in that data set. That doesn't mean it's, you, you use the term mark signal, a statistical signal. Those data points could all be noise, quote unquote, um, giving credit to Don Wheeler for that terminology. Um, we, we, we ascribe causes to noise in uh, a metric at our own peril because it ends up distracting us or misleading us or, you know, isn't just doesn't turn out to be helpful. Speaking of Don Wheeler, I, I believe that's one of the most underrated books and I'm going to call it a business book. Why yes, people, yeah. I know you have an engineering degree. I have a finance accounting background. I did not get that book in my nine hours of stats, yeah. but I believe that Don Wheeler's book, Understanding Variations, should be read by every CEO, operating manager, mm-hmm. even marketing people. Mm-hmm. I say that because when we get to your book, Measures of Success, I think your book is a bit more pragmatic Don's book is very accessible, but again, I just want to throw some kudos your way that your book is so practical. Well, thanks. I would say, please read both. Um, I am fortunate that I was exposed and I've got to grab my copy of it. I have it handy on the bookshelf. I I leave books, copies of it laying around in different places. I um, am fortunate that I was exposed to that book about 25 years ago because of my father. So I'm an industrial engineer with an MBA and a master's in engineering, a number of opportunities to take statistics courses. My dad's an electrical engineer with an MBA and a master's degree in statistics, but he was exposed to Don Wheeler during um, his career at General Motors and got to take a class and had the book on a shelf um, along with uh, Deming's Out of the Crisis, because my dad also took Dr. Deming's four-day workshop experience um, when he worked at General Motors. And so, you know, to me, Wheeler and, and Deming are very much in the same similar camp um, of, of helping us understand variation, hence the title of Wheeler's book, Understanding Variation. And I've given more copies of this book away than I've given away copies of any book about Toyota or any book with lean in the title. I, I wrote a piece for LinkedIn eight or nine years ago when I was invited to write for a series about a book that changed me. This book um, changed me. And I've tried to use those. Oh, I have used those lessons. I've tried to pass them along in different stops in my career in manufacturing, software companies, healthcare settings, um, sometimes with really enthusiastic uh, embrace. And sometimes people are like, well, huh, I know. I, I don't agree with the problem statement that's kind of inherent in the solutions that come in Wheeler's book or my book. When I read Wheeler's book, and again, I'll throw yours in there as well, my big insight was this is not just for manufacturing. This is not just about getting the specifications right for a certain product. This applies in measures, uh, metrics, KPIs, whatever you want to call them. And I Mm -hmm. think I've heard you say the same thing, right? Yeah. I mean, any time series data. So we can find examples in the news. Um, You'll see a data point, you know, certain certain crime in a certain area is up 15% this year. 
And everyone starts to want to explain it, kind of like trying to explain the ups and downs in the stock market. You know, the the uh, the Dow Jones was down 1.4% because of such and such, such and such, whatever. I'm not an investment guru, but I listen to this. I'm like, it's just noise. It's just filling time. It's, right. it's BS because then the next day, uh, what did I say? If the if the Dow was down 1.4% because of housing starts data, then the next day it's up 1.7% because of housing starts data or, you know, like just... We, we don't know when there's noise in a metric. Um, weigh yourself every morning, step on the scale, and you'll, unless you're Fred Rogers, who allegedly, who supposedly said he always weighed the same amount every single day. That's probably not true for the rest of us. And you say, well, my weight was up 0.8 pounds this morning. I'm going to stop eating whatever I ate yesterday. Well, that's probably nonsense, right? Our weight varies and fluctuates. My weight, my body, my system, if you will, is going to fluctuate differently than yours, Mark, or the listener. Um, and so we, we have to stop being kind of distracted by the need to explain all of the ups and downs in our metrics. And that's where you know the subtitle of my book is meant to be a bit of a summary. React less, lead better, improve more. Because the constant reaction, again, it just um, distracts us from the important work of our business or our organization. So whether it's crime data, economic data, our weight, uh, the winning percentage of a sports team over time, um, business measures in a, a manufacturing company, a startup software company, a healthcare organization, a lot of these metrics tend to just fluctuate around an average. And we can sometimes fool ourselves or mislead others when we start trying to ascribe wins and losses just based on one or two data points. I was rereading your book over the weekend and in, in our monthly newsletter, I mentioned a big block of words early in your book. Measuring is easy. Managing is hard, which kind of is a good segue for what you just said. Why is that? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of related expressions, if not cliches, that may or may not be helpful. Um, there's the one that says, what gets measured gets managed. And I'm like, maybe that's true. But in a lot of cases, again, measuring is easy. What does it mean when we say what gets measured gets managed? Managed how? Managed well or just giving the appearance of doing stuff, reacting, um, browbeating people, praising people, demanding a root cause analysis. Like there's a time and a place for that. But if you look at some performance metric that in a stable operation, meaning, you know, organization. Let's say, uh, you know, one of my last uh, projects before the pandemic was working with uh, an outpatient surgery center for uh, an academic health system. And they wanted to increase their patient satisfaction scores. So that's one, it's a measure, it's an estimate, it's an imperfect measure, 
because it's self-selecting of who responds to the surveys and there's all kinds of issues there. But all of that is consistent over time. And you say, well, we want to increase that metric. We're not happy with the level of performance. And we'll look and say, well, you know, over a period of two years, it's basically the same people doing the same type of work with the same types of patients in the same setting. Like the system, even though they may uh, aspire to continuous improvement, the reality might be like things are just kind of the way they are. So maybe it's not surprising that the patient satisfaction scores would be higher some months and lower um, other months. And um, so we, we, we can go and look at how the work is done in a less reactive way. So if, like, if, we, if we see something's just fluctuating around an average, uh, how do we manage it? How do we improve it? I've learned and I've seen firsthand is that we, we, we don't improve the system by asking, why was last month a good month, quote unquote? Um, you know, and, and, and there's that fluctuation and people in healthcare have different expressions for it. Um, this fluctuation, I've, I've heard it described as uh, clap or slap. If the metric is above average one month, you get a bunch of applause and clapping. And then the next month when the number goes down, they're not being literally slapped, but it feels like it verbally. Right. Or um, the other the other thing I've heard is uh, pizza or punish. Like, hey, the number's better. We're going to have a pizza party. And then the number goes down and, and there's no pizza or maybe people are now pressured. And there's, there's this, this roller coaster effect that I think we need to get away from. The cover of the book um, illustrates a roller coaster. That's not trying to illustrate the ideal state. That's trying to illustrate some of the current situation here. Let, let's stop getting too excited or too upset about all these ups and downs and instead figure out how do we improve our systems of work in a way that really boosts performance in a, a statistically meaningful way. This reminds me, and before we get into the nuts and bolts of your book, it reminds me of a quote. In fact, I got it right here. Effective managers don't just set targets. They work together with people to hit those targets. And that reminds me of a rule or a construct, a mental construct that Bob Stahl gave us a few months ago. He's a SNOP global expert, and he mentioned what's called the 630-10 rule. Now, he attributes it to uh, Laura Ciceri, who's a supply chain expert, but mm -hmm. she was very flattered. But the 630-10 rule goes something like this. Data, software, tools, that's going to give you about 10% of mm -hmm. your success. Uh, the new method, the process, that's going to give you maybe 30%, but change mm -hmm. behaviors that's yeah. where 60% of the success comes from. And that's why, Mark, I loved that first chapter because you attacked the people part before you get into the tools. I mean, there's, there's, there's deeply ingrained habits that we're either taught in school or taught to us in the workplace or reinforced with, by, by seeing how our leaders operate and act and behave. And so, you know, I, 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 I try to be understanding of where these current practices come from. It's not because, and I'm, I'm not saying you were implying this, but some people, you know, uh, will, will, you know, it's not because anyone's dumb or uneducated or they just maybe have um, some bad habits and th the bad habits can be re reinforced, unfortunately. So you think of like that dynamic and I write about this in the book and try to illustrate it in different ways of the pizza punish dynamic, right? So let's say you have a, a metric that's just fluctuating around an average 
It's not always going to be above average, below average, up, down, up, down. But so on the months when performance goes up, we throw a pizza party. The reality is, and the people doing the work know we didn't do anything differently last month, but you're giving us pizza. So eh, it's better than not having pizza as long as the pizza is not uh, awful. And so we celebrate. And people continue doing the same work the same way in the same environment. And guess what? You regress to the mean and, and performance drops. And so then leaders might say, think, well, faulty cause and effect relationship gets solidified in their brain that, well, when I praised them, when I celebrated, when I gave them pizza, performance dropped. It must be because they slacked off. So I'm going to stop rewarding them. I'm going to stop giving them pizza. And then when performance drops, if we on some level chew people out or give an inspiring speech or whatever our approach to it is, and that performance gets better, that reinforces, hey, skilled leader, you really know how to light a fire under people. And it's it's just BS, right? But these things get reinforced. And again, I think one of the biggest challenges is trying to open people's eyes that there's, I think there's a problem in the way we typically manage with one or two data points, red, yellow, green color coding and other things I get on a soapbox about. Like these things are very problematic, but helping people see that these things are problematic is, is again, like that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, really smart people doing things that are probably just counterproductive or wholly dysfunctional. And, you know, so there's times where I feel like a bit of a heretic, you know, kind of trying to, um, point these things out in a way that doesn't alienate people that, that tries to leave them open to maybe learning something and maybe trying a new way. Again, as I've learned from, from Wheeler and, and Deming, and I've tried to pass along in, in different ways, including my book. You have multiple mindsets in the book. Now that's the term I'm using. I've read, mm -hmm. I think I've read your book at least probably four times. And one of the first mindsets, it's really a series of three questions. And I, Mark, these are absolutely brilliant. Uh, number one, are we achieving the target or the goal? Number one, but we're not done there. You can't yeah. stop there. Right. Uh, and, I, and everybody does that generally, unless it's a really, really badly managed organization. And but. thank you for saying that. Uh, number two, are we improving? So you go back to that stock market, those, those stock prices, those quotes, that's probably the better question. Are, is, is there a trend here? And then number three is really the most important. How do we improve or how do we bend the curve or bend the trend? Mm -hmm. I just yeah. think, I don't really have a question. I just think those three questions are outstanding. Well, 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 thanks. I mean, I'll just add a little color to that. So again, that first question, are we achieving our goal or not? Like people are pretty focused, if not obsessed on that. Um, the second question of are we improving or not? People try to answer that. But again, they may be fooling themselves inadvertently, or they may be trying to tell a story or paint a picture that might not really line up with the real reality. So you know, for example, like looking at the two data point comparison and trying to, uh, you know, kind of prematurely declare victory because the organization and the political pressure is telling me, hey, you did this project. Do you need to show that it was effective? Like that's not good improvement science to use the term um, people in healthcare use a lot. Um, 
we, we, we shouldn't be using statistics to prove the point that we want to prove. Like this, is a, a, I'll use, you know, the Don Wheeler phrase of the voice of the process. Right. The process is speaking to us through metrics, whether we want to listen or not. We can put our fingers in our ears and say, no, 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 no. I don't want to know. I, I have to show we're improving. Data be damned. You know, I have to show that we're improving. And that's where, again, like the politics and the habits are more complicated than the math involved in uh, process behavior charts as, as a tool or a technique. The mindsets are, are important. And then back to that third point, how do we improve? Like there is a time and a place for reacting to a data point when it's a quote unquote statistical signal that that data point's an outlier. That data point is really unusual compared to the past. Um, so that's why you know, the subtitle of the book is not never react, it's react less. When we react to everything, let's say if I've got a scorecard, a corporate scorecard of uh, 10 key business measures, and five of them got better last month and five of them got worse last month, and I demand a root cause analysis of all five that got worse, like some of that's just a waste of time where maybe one of those 10 metrics shows the statistically meaningful signal. And again, there's some math around this, so we don't just guess, but we you know, visualize the data in a chart. And then we use a little bit of math to, to give us some guardrails to know, is that data point or those recent data points, is that a signal worth reacting to or not? So that, that third question of how do we improve? Is it a time to be reactive? Or do we kind of take a breath and take a step back and be a little bit more calm and systematic in how we go about improving? And that is a soft segue to my next question. You could have gone down a rabbit trail and made the book a little bit more, uh, I was going to say overly detailed. Instead, you threw in some really great dimming quotes, and that's the system. So mm -hmm. some people will stop like you said earlier, at that first question, are we hitting the target or the goal? And then when they do stop, sometimes they do it at the expense of the overall system. So again, that is another big takeaway or a key mindset is don't forget the system. Stupid. Not you, Mark, but me, Mark. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. But, you know, there's this idea that um, a performance measure is an output of the system. Um, the design of the system probably matters more than the individual execution within that system. So this is a Deming idea where, you know, it's, it's one of, you know, I think what he would call an unknowable number, but Deming would throw around numbers that say something like, well, 94% uh, of the performance in the system is based on the system and maybe 6% is due to individual effort. So you look at the obsession that organizations have of ranking and sorting people or sites or divisions. And, you know, you could look and let's say you've got uh, 10 salespeople. Um, it's not always going to be mathematically true, but five might be better than average and five might be performing worse than average. But if you look at the data and the metrics over time, like I've talked to a, a salesperson that I work with a lot um, the software company Kinexus that I've been involved in. And, he, and, and Clint would tell me at you know, a previous workplace, like, you know, one quarter you're in the top 10%, you're getting awards and pats on the back and bonuses. And then the next month you're down in the bottom half. And like some of it's just damn variation. Mm -hmm. 
It doesn't mean, and, and, and I think it's hard for people to understand, like we have, we want this very deterministic view of the world of if I do the same things, I'm going to get exactly the same result. And that's, I just, and that just doesn't turn out to be true. So there's a lot of dysfunction of how often do people get promoted or fired based on kind of random fluctuation in performance. Like if you're 10 salespeople at the same company in the same market in the same time, um, there, there are going to be certain systemic factors, the randomness of which leads go to which salespeople and, and, and all kinds of different factors that can't be attributed to the effort or the skill of the individuals. So that, that's, that's a different trap. Um, I think organizations fall into um, instead of the mistake of looking at data points over time, it's the mistake of looking at a snapshot in time of again, like what, what people, which hospitals in the system, which plants in a company, which divisions in a conglomerate um, are doing better or worse. There, there's, Again, a lot of that performance is going to be driven by the system. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, well, like, well, I don't want to believe that. That lets people off the hook. And like, well, I mean, you could, I mean, you could choose to not believe in gravity. I mean, I don't know if it's quite as proven of a principle, but just because you don't want to believe something doesn't make it untrue. And you, you, you and your business may suffer as, as a result of, of, of some of those decisions. Well, let's talk tools for a little bit. We've been talking about process behavior uh, charts. Some people will call them XMR charts. I think I got that from Stacy Barr, SBC charts, uh -huh. uh, for those of us Control who- Control charts. Yeah, exactly. Even though we've been talking about them, how about, again, theater of the mind here? It'd be probably mm -hmm. better to visualize, but uh, you're having a, a conversation with someone, having coffee. How, how do you describe a process behavior chart? So, you know, again, I'll give credit to Don Wheeler for that terminology. Um, you know, the uh, control chart, uh, that, 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 that word control yes. maybe rubs people the wrong yes. way a little bit. Statistical process control. Like I know the intent there is not right. bad, but some people are like, well, what do you mean control? So, you know, process behavior chart, we unpack it, is a chart that illustrates and shows us the behavior of our process. So, it starts with uh, basically a run chart. Um, and I, I could get on a different soapbox of like, do not express time series data with column charts right? of bar, quote unquote, bar charts, vertical bars. The, the default chart in Excel is a column chart. And if I were king of the world, I would flip that default to make the default a line chart. Because most of the time we're looking at time series data. Line chart, um, for a lot of reasons, um, is less misleading visually. So people looking at a chart, we're visual creatures. So we, 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 we chart, uh, we do a, a line chart or a run chart. Um, you know, ideally, uh, you know, give me, if we've got monthly data, I'd like, I'd love to see the last 24 data points. And then we, 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 we chart that. Now, even then visually, you can start looking to see, does that, Right. Seemed to be just fluctuating around an average. Was it fluctuating around an average? And then maybe there was some step function change where it suddenly looks like it's fluctuating around a higher average or <clears throat> a lower average. Um, we've got to be careful. It's too easy in Excel to draw linear trend lines, um, which might be mathematically correct, but uh, dubious or meaningless when it comes to real world application. So, you know, draw a run chart. 
and just look and just you, know, you can kind of visualize what's happening over time. But then uh, what makes it a process behavior chart or an XMR chart as a specific type of um, control chart or SPC chart is that, you know, for one, we calculate over a baseline time period, 12 or 18 or 24 months or something like that. We're going to calculate an average. There might be, might be some special cases where we calculate a median, but there's this center line that in most cases would be the average. And then that gives us another visual cue of, huh, you know, it might not be exactly half the data points above average, half the data points below average, but you might look and say, well, gosh, it really looks like it's just kind of stuck around that average over time. Then the, the other thing we calculate are what are called the lower and upper limits. So we draw two more horizontal lines. There are some special cases where um, all of these lines might be, you know, kind of linearly increasing. But the typical use is, you know, if it, the data is fluctuating around an average, we then calculate and add not just the horizontal line for the average, but the horizontal line for the lower and upper limits. Again, those are calculated based off of the amount of baseline variation that's inherent in the metric, month to month or point to point variation. So those upper and lower limits are calculated. Like that's a really key point. We don't get to choose them the way we would choose a target. So we calculate those lower and upper limits. We plot those. And then, then we have some you know, visual rules that are based off of some pretty rigorous math. And I'll defer to the PhD statisticians uh, on this over the past hundred years. But like, if we look at the chart and see all of our data points are within that lower and upper limit, we, that would be one reason uh, to, we, we might say, well, that's, there's nothing but noise in that chart. There's no uh, root causes or special causes, quote unquote, to be found. We would, then, you know, there's three key rules we might look at is, you know, uh, any data point that's outside of those limits, eight or more consecutive data points that are all above average or all below average. And then there's a third rule where we look for kind of a cluster of data points that are suspiciously close to the upper limit or all suspiciously close to the lower limit, like decidedly non-random looking periods of time. Um, so when we see a signal in the chart, that's the time to ask what happened, what changed? The chart and the math and the visualization is telling us something changed, whether it's something we did intentionally or something that happened uh, to us. Like, um, I'm in California and the port, you know, not too far off uh, from, from where I am. Like, I'm sure if you, I would love to see the data for this, the number of ships that are parked waiting to get into the port. I bet that number used to fluctuate around an average, and now that suddenly jumped up to 80 or 90 or 100 ships out there waiting. And I bet that number might be fluctuating around a new average here. So then at some point you see, well, there was a step function change. What happened? It's like, well, it's this whole COVID supply chain mess that happened. But, but then if we say, well, oh, the number of ships went down from 92 to 87, I don't know if that means we're on the on the way to that problem being solved or if it's now fluctuating around, you know, an average of, let's say, 90 ships. So we can use these charts to eliminate the guesswork. When do we see signals worth explaining and understanding and reacting to? And, and when is our system just noisy? Back to the third question of when do we react? When do we step back and be more systematic in our attempt to improve? I would say the biggest insight of reading Wheeler's book and then yours validating it 
And it, it, it was, to me, it was so obvious, and I don't know why other people don't get it. But if you want to change the average mm-hmm. upward or mm-hmm. make the variation tighter, that can only happen right. one way, and that's to change the process. The system. The system. Well, but then, there, yeah, but then there's the dynamic of when we set a goal or a target and we just pressure people instead of equipping them to actually improve the system. Great point. You get dysfunction and, and harm. So I think it's uh, Brian Joyner, who is a contemporary of Dr. Deming. And, you know, I, I think I cite him. Peter Schultz used to share this a lot. They all cited each other in sort of a, a circular citation. But the idea is, you know, like when you're, when you're pressuring people to improve or hit a target, three things can happen, two of which are dysfunctional. People can distort the numbers, fudging the numbers. Just they can distort the system, or they can actually improve the system. And when the first or the second are easier than the third, oh, people will do what it takes either to survive or hit a bonus. So I don't know if you're familiar, this happened years ago. The Wells Fargo yes. banking scandal at the retail level. And there's a Netflix documentary. I watched that kind of revisits this as part of the series it's called excellent. Dirty Money. The CEO of Wells Fargo set this kind of unattainable target that every customer needed to have eight different accounts or financial instruments. And when that was basically unrealistic, people would, this is then where, you know, I think they fired 5,000 people who were doing things like signing up their friends for accounts, strong arming them, like, hey, sign up for these accounts. It doesn't cost you nothing. Well, then it did. Or, you know, tricking the elderly into signing up uh, for accounts they didn't need. And there's all this dysfunction. And I was just appalled, if not disgusted, by the CEO and other leaders blaming, oh, we've got thousands of unethical employees, damn them. I'm like, no, they were they were responding to your dysfunctional system in very predictable ways. If they had consulted with, say, a Don Wheeler, they probably would have said, okay, you're setting this target and you're going to end up with a bunch of nonsense and BS. Um, and, and, and that, you know, say anyway, uh, no, it's not 5,000 unethical people. Um, similar things happened in the, in the VA health system around the country about fudging waiting times and distorting the system. And again, people get fired and like, well, okay, if you truly had, um, sorry, I, I'll stop the rant here, but Wells Fargo, if you truly had 5,000 unethical bankers, shame on you. You don't know how to run a bank and you don't know how to hire people. <laughs> Because here's here's the thing, like you, you in these branches, you could fire people for being, quote unquote, unethical and then drop new ethically screened people who have never done anything wrong in their career, drop them in that same system, threaten them with, with their job or promise them bonuses. And guess what? Boom, you've made them, quote unquote, unethical, which like no, it's just that's that's the system driving that behavior. Yes, we have free will. Um but we're also driven by systems, uh, you know, an organization and societal levels. That's getting a little too esoteric there. Sorry. But if I were at some boring dinner event and you were at my table and if we needed a way to make it a little bit more lively, more add some spice to the conversation, you just use the word rant. 
I think, let's get Mark on a rant. And you know what my rant <laughs> suggestion would be? It would be bowling charts. Uh, yeah. the, the red, yellow, green. Uh, so even though we're talking about tools, this is maybe a tool you don't want to uh, implement, stay away from. Yeah. But wouldn't they be a great rant for you, Mark, to, to go on bowling charts? I'm back to um, Dennis Miller. I'm not going to try to do an impression of the day, but he goes, I don't mean to go off on a rant here, but uh, and then proceed to do so. But yeah, bowling charts are, um, I think that term's pretty commonly used, or at least in the circles I run in. I've seen it in manufacturing and in healthcare and different settings of basically it's just a grid of numbers like put together in a spreadsheet or some reporting engine that spits out what looks like a spreadsheet. And so you might see a grid of numbers and I think it's called, you know, it's referred to as a bowling chart because I grew up uh, bowling a lot um, as a kid. When you're keeping score, you see a grid of 10 frames and you might have four or five people bowling. So you've got this grid of numbers and um, that, that, that it's just, it, it can be really misleading with color coding or not. So you take that bowling chart. I don't think the human brain is really well attuned to detect trends by looking at a list of numbers. That's why we have this technology called the run chart. Right. Visualize the data. It's so much uh, more helpful and less misleading. But then, then there's the color coded dynamic where, um, you know, I, I use examples in, in the book and I think I've built, built some better examples since where you can sort of, um, you know, throw numbers in front of people in this bowling chart format and you look at the most recent month and let's say you've got 10 metrics and uh, three of them are red and seven of them are, gr are green. And you ask, well, like, which, which one of those do you spend time digging into? And people are going to say, well, of course the red ones. Why? Because they're not hitting target. Um, the fact that it's not hitting target that month, like maybe the metric's always red. It's just fluctuating at a level of performance that's not good enough. But again, like there's no use in asking like, what was different last month? The answer might be nothing. Then there might be metrics that are constantly fluctuating between red and green. That leads to a lot of overreaction and... Um, and then, and then you might have a metric that's always green and then this last data point was still green, but it was below the lower limit if you were using process behavior charts, right? So there, there are lessons to be learned here when you're looking at these numbers and you have color coding. I've, I've heard people say, and I think it's just flatly incorrect, like, oh, well, if the metric is green, there's nothing to look at. But there might be. Right. You might be better than target, but the process behavior chart vis-a-vis -a, -vis a data point that's below the lower limit tells you the system has changed. It might be degrading. You can step in and intervene and correct things and put performance back to where it was rather than letting performance continue to degrade until suddenly it goes yellow or red. Ugh, and then people go and react. And, and the longer you take to react, the more difficult it is then to do the investigation and the problem solving and the root cause analysis that would be appropriate if you could do it triggered in a, a timely way. Mark, I want to make sure we have... We're, we're okay with time. Can we play a really quick yep. lightning round? So yeah, yeah. I'm just yeah. going to throw out a couple of terms, quick answer. Moving averages. Now, this did not come up in your book. Uh, Davis, Davis, mm -hmm. I can't remember his last name. Uh, Balastrachi. Thank you. I, I, I wanted yeah. someone else to say 
Uh, he has some really I, good. I think I said it right. Hopefully. He has some really good blog posts about the use of moving averages and that it can distort uh, mm-hmm. the numbers that you're looking at. Can can you add mm-hmm. to that briefly? So, I mean, there, there's uh, a noble purpose in using moving averages. So, look at you know, in COVID times, um, you see the number of positive tests in a given day, and there's there's so much um, like you know, batchiness and um, you know. Uh, Day-to-day variation is going to be very high. Um, so we can try to smooth that out so that we're not misled by using a moving average. We could also try to avoid being misled by a very being misled by a very noisy metric by using a process behavior chart. Because the, the, one, the one problem with moving averages is that if the system has changed and suddenly becomes significantly better or significantly worse, the moving average throws a lag into our ability to detect that. So if, you know, there, there are some of these countermeasures thrown out, like, well, let's, lose, let's use a moving average. I'm like, well, we could use a process behavior chart. If you look at the weight and the number on the scale, there are some people, some experts who say, don't weigh yourself every day because you're going to overreact. So just weigh yourself once a week. You could do that, or you could learn to not overreact by putting your weight on literally a process behavior chart. So I think um, th- there might be special cases where a moving average would be um, less dysfunctional, but I, I, that's not always the tool I would go to. Now, you this next one, you mentioned this in the book, but daily tracking, weekly, and by the way, I think you mentioned hourly, but you were mm-hmm. talking about when. Do you have some uh, just high-level su- suggestions on time frame? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you're, you you could have metrics, again, that are, you know, um, hourly, could be by shift, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually. Um, process behavior chart methodology scales really well to the well, how much you've zoomed in or zoomed out. Because if you're doing a chart with uh, hourly metrics, you're going to calculate the limits on that chart based on the hour to hour variation, which might be pretty high day to day variation tends to be smoothed out and a little bit less and week to week variation, maybe even less. So, so when somebody asked me, they said, well, we've got a month, a metric now that we only currently look at monthly. Should we look at it weekly? And I would say, well, in, in the old regime of color coding and reacting to the data points, if a weekly metric just means more chaos and more overreaction, I would say, well, no, save yourself that. But if we're using the tools and the mindsets of process behavior charts, I would always want a chart that can, has a faster clock speed to it because the process behavior chart helps me not overreact. And then if I have a, if I have a chart, a metric that's, let's say, weekly instead of monthly, I can detect changes in my system, whether it's the effect of me consciously trying to improve it or something that just happened. I can detect that so much faster because I have more data points to apply those rules in the process behavior chart. So I can I can detect signals more quickly. I can prove more quickly. Have I really shifted performance? Um, so typically, again, in that, that one organization I was working with up before the pandemic, When you have a monthly patient satisfaction metric, it takes a really long time to see, well, do we have eight consecutive months that are now better than the old baseline average? But if I have weekly metrics, I I can I can see that more quickly. And then, you know, there there are some finer points we have to be careful if we're doing a daily metric 
it's possible that Saturday and Sunday are not part of the same system that we have working Monday through Friday. So you might have to be careful of, oh, am I really looking at daily or am I looking at weekdays? Or you know, there's some finer points there, but I, I would want more frequent metrics as long as I'm not just overreacting more. What about meeting cadence? So if, if, if you're helping a team improve in X, Y, or Z, what kind of a meeting cadence do they have in terms of getting back together to look at those process behavior charts? So the thing that just generally doesn't work in healthcare and a sort of the default norm is like the team that gets together once a month. Like that, that's just, that's maybe well-intended, but it's giving more the impression of improvement than real improvement because it's just, it's such slow cycles. So that's where the benefit of having, you know, some sort of dedicated team working on something um, on a pretty full-time basis allows us to drive improvement much more quickly. Like there are some, I'm not, you know, there's a time and a place for a quote unquote Kaizen event that can be taken a little too far where we shouldn't turn everything into a Kaizen event. Uh, But there's something to be said for a rapid burst of, of focus and attention and data collection and observation and improvement. And then trying to close the loop more quickly, we made a change. We have a hypothesis that if we, make these changes to the process, patient waiting times will go down and therefore satisfaction scores will go up. You know, in that one project that I was coaching a team through um, at at the system, working on that basically full time for a couple of months, I think accomplished way more than they would have accomplished with monthly meetings. I I don't feel like that's going out on a limb to say. Not because it's just through, it's it's a, a different example of a system, I guess. Is it a monthly committee meeting or is it a more focused improvement system? Mark, you've been very, very gracious with your time. And I love your website. Before we wrap up, where can we learn more about you? And tell us a little bit about your work. And do you only work in healthcare? Um, uh, So to answer that one first, you know, I started my career in uh, in manufacturing. And and that's where I thought I was going to spend my whole career. So I spent a decade... Uh, in in workplaces or back to graduate school and then back to workplaces really focused on manufacturing. Then 2005, long story short, I had an opportunity to go do some similar consulting in healthcare. Um, I was hired by Johnson and Johnson, which at the time had a consulting group that was always out in the field with healthcare organizations. And I thought at the time, like, well, I'll, I'll learn a lot. Maybe I'll do this for a couple of years and then go back to manufacturing. Um, 15 plus 16 years later, um, I, I'm still focused very heavily on healthcare. My first couple of books were written for healthcare, Lean Hospitals, and another book, Healthcare Kaizen. Uh, Measures of Success, for a number of reasons, I did write intentionally as not a healthcare management book, but a broader um, management book. So I've, I've had opportunities to speak at uh, the Lean Startup Week conference that Eric Reese organized. Um, trying to, you know, there's the software company Kinexus that, you know, from the CEO on down um, has really embraced these ideas of not reacting to the noise and they use control charts. And um, I think that's been really useful. So, there, you know, there are certain things I like to do. Like, I really like to help leaders uh, create a culture of continuous improvement. And I've been able to dabble a little bit outside of healthcare um, and then teaching people this process behavior chart methodology 
you know, it has broad application. I have a lot of passion around it. So I've, I've tried creating opportunities to do uh, teaching and, and, and consulting in other industries. So I guess the short answer is uh, I'm open to it. You know, um, you know, and, and, and there's also the sad reality of the past two years with COVID. Um, you know, uh, I'm trying to, um, you know, pivot some of my work a little bit. And, um, and, you know, there, there's so many healthcare organizations still in the, in the, in the depths of, um, of COVID hell in their communities. And, um, there's a lot of, you know, stress and, burnout and PTSD. And so some of the work around lean and continuous improvement in healthcare, unfortunately, has been put on hold, not everywhere. Like that's a positive rant where I'd say the organizations that have doubled down on continuous improvement during the pandemic uh, are, are reaping the rewards and benefits of that. But um, so yeah. anyways, uh, people can I probably gave you more that that wasn't a lightning round answer, but uh, websites are either just markgraben.com, uh, the measures of success website for the book is measuresofsuccessbook.com. But again, markgraben.com will kind of point people to the the different book websites, my blog, leanblog.org, the podcasts. And we'll have all of those in the show notes. Uh, And and just my two cents, my two cents, the healthcare industry is blessed to have you, but the whole world (laughs) needs to hear your message. Hey, I can't let you go. This is CFO Bookshelf. I've got to ask you some of your okay. favorite books, past, present. We know the books that you gift. So we know the Donald Wheeler is is a right. transformational book, but other books that come to mind. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, books by W. Edwards Deming um, have been very influential uh, to, on, on, on me out of the crisis and his later book uh, before he passed almost 30 years ago uh, called The New Economics. Deming's writing style, the critics would say, like, sometimes it's a slog. I mean, like he was he was brilliant. Probably could have used an editor. And I feel awful saying that. But there are books written by others who learned from Deming, who distilled it into books that are a little bit uh, maybe a little bit more readable without losing uh, the fidelity there. Um, there's there's a book by Rafael Aguayo um, about Deming. I'm having a, a brain cramp, but um, you know I, I think Deming is, was so far ahead of his time in different ways. Um, yeah, so Aguayo's book was just Dr. Deming, um, the American who taught the Japanese about quality, which is not the fully complete way of describing Dr. Deming, but I mean, you know, he passed away almost 30 years ago, but um, some of his ideas continually get um, rediscovered and um, packaged with attribution or not. So I think the Deming books are, are, are really important. You know, the work that I guess another category, uh, two more examples. So another category is books about lean or the Toyota production system. Uh, Pascal Dennis is somebody who I think writes incredibly readable books, uh, nonfiction and business novels, both. I'm not a, a fiction reader, so a business novel doesn't do much for me, but Pascal's written both types of books. Um, David Mann has a great book called Creating a Lean Culture that uh, I really like and really recommend um, of being really practical, really um, readable then there's a third category of, of book. I'll throw you a bit of a curveball where I've tried learning a lot more over the last five years 
about psychology and counseling as related to the way humans react to change. Um, we can call that change management or um, you know leadership books. So there's there's a field that comes out of uh, counseling, like literally out of addiction treatment, on um, this methodology called motivational interviewing. Now, not to be confused with the motivational speaker, right? This is not about um, interviewing in a way that asks leading questions that ends up motivating someone. We're not motivating per se. And this kind of ties into what Deming would have said. Deming, one of his phrases was, you can't motivate people, you can only hope to not demotivate them, right? So motivational interviewing tries to help people strengthen the motivation that they have to change. Um, there are a lot of applications in the workplace. Like I, I, I wish we could forbid the phrase resistance to change because I think that's blaming people unfairly for their human nature. They may be hesitant about change. Like we're hearing that word a lot more now when it comes to, let's say, vaccination, but there's a good reason for using that word. Um, people are hesitant about change. And so this, this field of motivational interviewing, there's, there's a book out there written by um, some counselors and social workers called Motivational Interviewing for Leadership, because it talks about the workplace applications um, of, of, of change and uh, the way our brains work, like that, that's a field that I think is um, something I wish people were uh, exposed to more, kind of along the lines of Deming and Wheeler and process behavior charts. So I guess I have a spot, a soft spot for that type of topic where like, this is brilliant. This is really useful. Why doesn't anybody know about this? So that's the other thing I would point people to. Why well, get to have the last word? There are four people, mm -hmm. four people that if you want to learn and study performance improvement the healthy way for people, number one, Donald Wheeler. Mm -hmm. Number two, Mark Graben. Number three, Stacy Barr. Number mm -hmm. four, Dean Spitzer. That, I hope, that's the best compliment I can give you, Mark. You are phenomenal. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. That's great company to be in. I've, I've seen um, Stacy's work and heard her talk. Um, big fan of what she's doing. I don't know Dean's work as well. I'll have to go um, check him out, but I'm honored to be uh, included in company like that. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. There at the end, when Mark was mentioning books, he brought up Pascal Dennis, but no book titles were mentioned. Here's one. It's one I purchased right back in 2013. It's called Getting the Right Things Done, A Leader's Guide to Planning and Executing. It is in the form of fiction, by the way, and you will learn about A3 problem solving if that is new to you. Let's make this conversation Sticky. I want to ask you five questions before we wrap up. I call, I call them the big three, the big three questions that Mark brings up in the book. And in my opinion, it's worth the entire price of the book. These three questions he brings up. These questions are for CEOs, CFOs, managers, coaches, mentors. They're for everybody. The three questions, number one, are we achieving the target or goal? Number two, are we improving? 
Number three, what's the third question? Number two, Mark's rant on bowling ball charts. What is wrong with them? Number three, on a process behavior chart, there are three horizontal lines. Two are the upper and lower limits of the data. What is the third one? Number four, when you pressure people to change or improve a number or target, generally three things can happen. People can distort the numbers, people can budge the numbers, or people can fill in the blank. The last one, true or false. True or false, it's about meeting cadence for teams working on an improvement project. So here it is, true, is it true or false? The team that can influence the numbers, meeting monthly is the best time to go over the numbers and updates on how system changes are going. Is that true or is it false? Again, love Mark's book, Measures of Success, Rack Less, Lead Better, Improve More. Don't forget to look him up wherever you listen to this podcast. I've got my eye on a handful of episodes of his My Favorite Mistake. And I will certainly be listening to his interview with Dan Pink uh, that he just recorded. We need to wrap this up. This is Mark Gandy for CFO Bookshelf.